you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. You know, it's a great day in Franklin, Tennessee today. Hope it is where you are. We're ready to go through some of the questions that have been submitted this week. If you're a new listener to 48 Days, we welcome you in. Each week, I take 48 minutes to go through some of the questions that have been submitted. Questions that are real-life questions and questions that certainly relate to things that all of us are doing. You know, success principles are very transferable. The challenges that we experience are very common, and the solutions, again, help us all move toward higher levels of success. Here are some of the questions we're going to be dealing with today. My ideal life would be to work in Africa part of the year and be in the States the rest. What would you suggest to support myself and do ministry? How about this one? What should I charge for staging homes for sale and how much do I pay my helpers? I have interviewed for many school administrator positions, but it seems to be who you know that determines who gets the job. How does a job seeker get around the online applications that ask if you've ever been fired? I see a need to teach good customer service skills around the world. What do you think? And here's here's one. I hope we get to this one. Should I stay with the true love of my life or follow my business dream for life satisfaction? Oh, I'm going to have to switch my Dr. Phil hat on for some of these that seem to go beyond just business. And they always do. You know, our lives are very intertwined. It's not a matter of just using principles on the job or in business. And then we take that hat off and come home. Nope. What we do at work, what we do at home, very much the same, very much portrays who we are, what we value, what we're all about, what we believe, and all those things. Well, here's a quotation to get us started today. This comes from Harrison Ford, who says, All I would tell people is to hold on to what was individual about themselves, not to allow their ambition for success to cause them to try to imitate the success of others. You've got to find it on your own terms. You know, I read a blog this morning. It was a guest blog on Mike Hyatt's site, but it was done by John Acuff, a young guy who works at the Dave Ramsey organization, who has just released a new book called Quitters. And he talked about recently being interviewed on Dave's show about his book. Now, John is, you know, a blog that's read by lots of people. He's spoken to lots of audiences. He's written this is, I think, his third book. But he talked about how intimidated he was in being interviewed by Dave on Dave's radio show. And afterward, Blake Thompson, Dave's radio producer, said, you know, Dave, what you're seeing with Dave is 17 years of practice and experience. And John said a quote that I think we can add to this one by Harrison Ford. And John says this, never compare your beginning to someone else's middle. That's a pretty cool quote. Never compare your beginning to someone else's middle. You know, sometimes, you know, authors who in struggling to write their first book, you know, they say, geez, how did you get to where you are? Well, to get to where I am shows, you know, 20 years of writing, speaking, getting things published. You know, it didn't happen overnight. 
And in today's environment, so often people who are just getting started, you know, compare themselves to where Michael Dell or, you know, Bill Gates or, um, you know, William or, um, well, it's all the people that are, you know, extremely successful. Golly, you know, you look at Warren Buffett and you think, well, gee, I wish I had his expertise at investing and predicting, you know, stock trends. Well, if you did it as many years as Warren Buffett has been doing that, you'd be a whole lot better than where you are now if you're just starting. Don't negate the value of just starting. Everybody started somewhere. If you want to have a newsletter with 100,000 readers, start today. Start with one person. You start somewhere. I started my newsletter with 67 email names that I had, friends and family, back in August of 2000. Well, a lot has happened since then, but just value your beginning. Well, let me go right into the questions. Debbie from Nashville says, I left a corporate job two years ago, sold my home and have worked with a ministry in Kenya, as well as attended a mission school in Mozambique. My ideal life would be to work in Africa part of the year and be in the States the rest. What would you suggest to support myself and do ministry? I'm currently self-supporting. Well, Debbie, I commend you and what you're doing, your heart for ministry. What I would encourage you to do is connect your life in Africa with your life here in the States. Don't try to live a compartmentalized life where you're doing ministry and then you come back to the States and just put on your making money hat. Do both. Find a way to blend those. Otherwise, you'll never be great at either one. Now, you've heard me talk about my son, Jared, who does exactly what you are wanting to do. He lives in Mombasa, Kenya, right down on the tip, the little peninsula that goes right out into the Indian Ocean. He loves it there. But then he's back here in the States. He and I, Leah, his wife, are back here in the States about six months out of the year. Now, what do they do to allow them to live there where they prefer living? Living there, it's funny, you know, a lot of people hear that Jared is living in Mombasa, Kenya, and it's like, oh my gosh, he's suffering as a missionary. No, he's not. He's laying on the beach where it's 85 degrees, 365 days out of the year, because he thinks it's the coolest place in the world to live. Yesterday, he and I, Leah, went and bought groceries. They spent like $15 for the week, and then they went out to lunch. They spent $2 and had this great lunch for both of them. I mean, he loves living there. That's why they're there. He doesn't, he's not convinced that he's going to you know, change the world, make it a better place because he's there rather than in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, be that as it may, yes, he is involved in things there that are true ministry and are helping other people. And the way he makes it work is to help those people become equipped to do something valuable. So he is helping them you know, make jewelry and make baskets and pottery and other things. Then he comes back here and he does these high fashion shows in places like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. He schedules these incredible runway shows where they display the jewelry made by the ladies in Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, places like that in Africa. And in doing so, He can pay those ladies very well for doing that work. They become equipped to do something, to be self-supporting, to hold their heads high and provide for their families. But at the same time, it generates income that he can live on as well. 
It's not a nonprofit. He doesn't hold his hand out and say he's doing a worthy work. So why don't you poor suckers who are just working corporate jobs, you know, give me money so I can live the life I want to live. No, you know, I mean, this is just an example of what we call social entrepreneurship or ethical capitalism. Call it what you want. Work out your own model for how that could work. Teach the people in Kenya what you learned in the corporate world. I mean, the last thing you want to do is cripple them by just giving them resources. Engage them in the process of becoming self-sufficient. Compassion is a whole lot more about equipping than it is about handouts. So do both, but don't feel like you have to live a disconnected life where you live in Kenya and do ministry and then you come back here and just make money to support the, the one half of your life. Blend the whole thing together and there are a lot of ways you can do that effectively. Jamie from Atlanta says, Dan, I enjoy reading your blog every day. I'm interested in starting a book review blog myself that would highlight business, motivational, inspirational, and maybe biographical people who are involved in business type of books. My father reads and collects these type of books. I have several hundred. Is this an idea that I can make money from? Well, Jamie, blogging is primarily to build an audience. I mean, seldom does it work as a way to make money directly. Now, I say directly because certainly indirectly, it does make money. I blog every day. Well, actually, I don't blog every day. You know, people ask me about that. Gee, how do you find time to blog every day? I really don't blog every day. Now, do you see a blog from me every day if you're following that? Yes, you do. I blog on Monday mornings. I blog on Monday mornings. So that's the time that I sit down and I blog for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I don't do Saturday or Sunday, but I blog five days a week. But I do the writing on Monday and then I schedule it to appear each morning during the week. That's a very effective way to do that. That way I'm not switching hats a lot. I can have Tuesday or Wednesday devoted to totally a particular project without interrupting that to blog because I've already scheduled it. Now, if something, you know, something newsworthy happens, something cool happens in my own life, and I think I want to blog about that and I want it to go out immediately, certainly I can do that. And I just unplug the scheduling for one that was going to go out that day or the next morning. But in blogging, that's just come some of the logistics about blogging, but in blogging, I mean, I don't see that as a way to generate income directly. My rule of thumb in doing newsletters, blogging, podcast is to do 95% just hope and encouragement, inspirational things, the kind of things you're talking about here, Jamie. 95% that and only 5% where it's tied to revenue production, where I may mention a book that I have or an upcoming seminar or workshop. Now, you can have actual ad spots on your blog. However, nobody's interested in paying you money for that until you've already established an audience. So until you have an audience of maybe five or 10,000 people who are reading your blog, nobody's going to pay you for the opportunity of having an ad spot there. So it means you better have a good enough content and other ways that you're generating income anyway, until you build a big enough audience that's attractive to advertisers. So you have to start out just by having great content, build your audience first, and you do that just by having great content and people share it and come back every day or every week whenever you blog to read what you have to share. Now, let me give you the names of a couple guys who do have ad spots on their blogs. 
Well, let me give you the names and I'll tell you what they're doing. One is Michael Hyatt and the last name is H-Y-A-T-T. So you just go to michaelhyatt.com. Another is Chris Brogan, C-H-R-I-S-B-R-O-G-A-N.com. Chris wrote the book, Trust Agents. He has probably one of the you know, a bigger audience for his blog, perhaps than, well, maybe at times than anybody else in the world right now. But he's very active in the social media space and has a highly read blog. Another one is Guy Kawasaki. Guy has been writing for a long, long time, has established himself as a great marketer. And his last name, incidentally, is spelled K-A-W-A-S-A. A-K-I. So it's GuyKawasaki.com. Check those three guys out and you can see they have ad spots there. They have things that are creating revenue for them. And you, you can find even places where those guys will click you through and it tells you how to buy an ad on their, on their blog. Those are really rare examples. And those are guys who had really big audiences before they started having ads on their blogs. So Again, this is the chicken and the egg. You can't charge for ads on your blog when you're just starting out. After you have a massive audience, yeah, then there is that potential. You can check that out. It's something that I'm looking at. I've never done that. I've had a lot of people ask me about it being on there, but I've just not done that. But I may look at that. If it's done tastefully, I think it can be done okay. But you have to be careful in things like blogs and podcasts and newsletters. I mean, the reason podcasts are popular is because you don't have to wade through the 12 minutes of commercials that are part of talk radio as an example. So people are drawn to podcasting because, you know, it's like TiVo on on the TV. If you record a program, then you TiVo it and then you can fast forward through the commercials so you don't have to sit there and watch those. I mean, you have to be convinced that the content is attractive. If your content is attractive enough, then certainly there are things you can do. If you want to build an audience in this space that you're talking about where you're highlighting books, then you can actually be selling those books. You can be doing seminars, workshops, have affiliate links, do teleseminars. There's a lot of things you can do once you build an audience for good contact. Renee from St. Clair Shores, Michigan says, Dan, I love staging and decluttering homes. I've had two back surgeries, so I'd need help. What would I charge my clients and how much do I pay my helpers? I feel I could provide a great service with my expertise, but need ideas on how and where to start since I haven't gotten yet any customers to use as referrals. Well, Renee, I would encourage you to be realistic about your physical limitations if you're starting a business that requires a lot of physical work. I mean, I think that it's a tough way to go if you want to start a business when you can't perform the work required to do the business itself. I mean, if you're going to start a landscaping business or a window washing business, but you can't do either of those things, I would encourage you to do some other kind of business. And I think this, if you're really limited in what you can do physically and you want to do staging or decluttering of homes that require just by nature, a lot of physical work, moving bookcases and moving dressers and beds and chairs and couches, I would question doing that. I don't think that you can start a business from the ground level where you need to hire out everything that needs to be done. I mean, every business that I've ever started, I did everything, at least initially. And then as the business grew, then I could start delegating 
part of that to other people that could do the work. But I don't think it's a good idea to start a business where you have to hire out everything. There's too much overhead. There's too much cost built in right from the day, day one. Now, if you're a master at staging decluttering homes, you may write an ebook about how to do that. Or you may do a workshop for realtors on how to do that effectively. So you're not actually doing the work itself. Now, you need some history of having done that and certainly some visual examples perhaps videos about how that's done, you maybe could do that where you do a video of staging a home for sale or decluttering a home where you do hire somebody to do the work and you're behind the scenes helping with the video and then editing of that. But then you have a product that you can sell. You are creating at that point residual income where you've done something one time and can sell it or get the income from that 10,000 times because the work, the physical work has already been done and it was done once and you captured that in a way that you can then sell that again and again. But I would look at it and approaching it like that. Just be creative about approaching this in a way that doesn't require you to, to need heavy physical labor day after day after day. Well, Doreen from Syracuse says, I've interviewed for many school administrator positions, but it seems to be a very competitive field being who you know in order to get the job. I don't know many people in positions doing the hiring. Can you help me? Yes, I can help you, Doreen. And I'm going to tell you, you know, be careful about stepping back behind the idea that it's who you know or being lucky or being in the right place at the right time. Now, can those factors play into the hiring process today. Yes, they can. But as an example, I live in right near Nashville, Tennessee. So it's a real magnet for people who are creative. And I hear people all the time saying, you know, well, gee, you know, I'm just not lucky in having the right connections. I don't know anybody in the music industry. I'm just not getting a lucky break. And then I see you know, people who you know, waltz into town and two weeks later, you know, they've got a record deal and they're being played on the radio and they get all these opportunities when they did not have all the old networking connections. They didn't have a rich uncle here who opened the doors for them. No, they just get out and did things. We can always find the fatal flaw in not being offered a job. And it really rarely is going to come down to knowing the right people or being in the right place at the right time. If I'm going to hire for a position, let's say that I need a bookkeeper or a graphic designer. Trust me, I am not going to hire, you know, Joanne's first cousin because, you know, they're her first cousin. I'm going to find the best person for the opportunity. I mean, it just isn't going to go in that direction. You may have, you may find a church that hires, you know, just out of compassion or because somebody knows somebody. But you don't find that done in businesses where they're really trying to find the best people. I mean, a company down here who is, you know, has selling new cars is not going to just hire somebody because, gee, they're the, uh, now, now certainly, you know, maybe the, the son or the daughter of the owner is going to get an opportunity that nobody else would, but that doesn't go very far down the chain. I mean, I'm not going to uh, see a car dealer that hires first cousin of his bookkeeper just because she's the first cousin of his bookkeeper. No, he wants somebody that can get the job done. This is going to be true 
almost without exception. So the question really is, why are you not being offered a position? And we can go right through the process. This is a process. Getting a job is a very doable process, and we can see where is it breaking down. If you're not getting any interviews, then we can look at your resume and say, does it really convey your highest areas of competence? Is it a great sales brochure for you? Does reading your resume whet the appetite of anybody who reads it so they really want to see you, meet you face to face and talk to you? If not, then let's work on the resume and make sure that it does all of those things. If you're getting interviews, then we know the resume is doing what it needs to do. If you're getting interviews, that in fact has happened. Or somebody reading it says, I want a chance to talk to this person. However, if you've had four or five interviews and you've not been offered a job, then we know it's not your resume, it's not your degrees, it's not your credentials, all those are fine. But if you've had four or five interviews and nobody has offered you a job, then there's something in your personal presentation that makes people unsure that they really want you on their team. So let's just look at that. What is it in your personal presentation that is making people not be excited about having you on their team? Those are the kind of questions that are going through an interviewer's mind in the first critical three minutes of an interview. It's not, where did you go to school? Where'd you get a degree? Blah, blah, blah. It's, do I like you? Do I feel like this person is fun to be around? Are they going to fit in as part of our team here? Now, this is where it gets very, very subjective. This is not just looking at the fine print on the fourth page of your resume. These are questions that come right from the heart, right from the gut. And you may think, well, that's not really fair. I have better credentials than somebody else. It doesn't matter. Hiring is not a science. It's much more an art. It's not a fair process. But you can do things. If you know that you've, in fact, had four or five interviews and not been offered a position, then do Practice interviews where you, in fact, play both roles. You can play both the interviewer and the interviewee where you go on the other side and you interview a person playing you and ask yourself, would I hire this person? Would I want them to be on our team? Does this person smile? Do they have a lot of energy and enthusiasm? I mean, those are things that you can do. You can do effectively. I mean, I interviewed a gentleman one time. I didn't interview him. I had him as a client, rather. He had been interviewing for 14 months. He had had previously a high-level position in a company. And after 14 months of interviewing, and had tons of interviews, nobody had ever offered him a job. Well, he came to see me, he and his wife. And about five minutes into our conversation, I said, look, let's just make this right to the point. I said, I know why you're not getting interviews. And he was aghast. He said, what do you mean? You know why I'm not getting offers rather. And I said, every time I start to make a point, you interrupt me and speak louder to speak over me. I said, you're interviewing with human resource directors. I said, most of those people I would suspect were half your age. He says, yes, absolutely. I said, when you over talk them and interrupt, it gives them a sense that you have to be in control. You supersede their responsibility. They're going to be very kind and gracious and politically correct and say that you're overqualified. We don't have a position, whatever. But the bottom line is there's no way in the world they're going to give you an opportunity. You have to learn to listen. You have to learn how to sell yourself in an interview, not overpower them with your qualifications and credentials. 
while his wife sat there nodding her head, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And he was like, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? Excuse me. Well, sometimes when you have a lot of credentials and you've had some great experience, it's difficult for people to be honest with you and tell you those things that are hard to hear. And the safest thing for them to do is simply politely decline hiring you or offering you anything. So you have to sort through what is it about me that is making people not want to give me an opportunity. Fortunately, you can do that. You know, get the advice and opinion of a couple of people who are close to you who will be brutally honest. Stand up in a practice interview. Stand up when if you do a phone interview. By all means, stand up. Watch yourself in a mirror. You can get all kinds of clues about why somebody is not giving you an opportunity. Well, Chris from Atlanta says, how does a job seeker get around the online applications that ask if you've been fired? There are decent part-time jobs I've missed out on because this medium has automatically weeded me out. Aren't companies missing good workers who may have a legitimate reason for their firing? Or should one only apply for jobs that do not use online applications? We've asked several good questions here, Chris. Company use applications simply to act as a screening tool. Now, why do companies put in their degree required? Well, a lot of times having a degree has virtually nothing to do with the position or responsibilities, but it's just simply a screening tool. Having a degree shows somebody that you had the discipline to stick with something for four years, typically. So that's a good kind of personal qualification. Is it required as part of the job? Many times, no. And many times you can bypass that easily if you're creative in your job search where you'll get a position and you bypass people who have better credentials, degrees, more better work experience because you do come across as the person they want to have on their team. Companies will ask, have you ever been fired? Have you ever had a felony? Have you ever filed bankruptcy? I mean, those are just questions just to screen people. You know, do companies hire people who have had felonies? Absolutely. There's lots of companies that do that. Companies hire somebody who's been fired? My gosh, any company realizes there's a whole lot of reasons for people being fired today that often have nothing to do with the person's responsibility, with their competence, the value they contribute to a company? Absolutely. So you do want to get past those things. If you are filling out online applications, you are not using a job search process that I lay out in 48 Days to the Work You Love. Because in there, I tell you to take the initiative, you identify 30 to 40 companies that you think there would be a good potential match of your skills with what they're trying to accomplish. You contact them in a three-step process that includes an introduction letter, then a cover letter and resume, then a phone follow-up. I mean, that allows you to bypass that process of filling out applications. If you do a good job in those three steps, you can get opportunities where you never do fill out an application. And in those applications, yeah, where all those little screening things will simply be bypassed. So yeah, do a better job search process than filling out online applications. If it's something that you really want and it's there, then be honest with it, but then do an aggressive follow-up to let them know you really want the opportunity. So even if you did put on there, yeah, I've been fired six times in the last 10 years, 
you can still get an opportunity if you follow up and if you let them know you really are the candidate that they're looking for. So don't be deterred by just that alone, but make sure you're not using just online applications with all those screening filters on there as your only method of finding new opportunities. Well, this comes from, what is the name here? From Sydney, Australia, down under. Says Dan, I, I'm an IT professional. I've developed a business plan for a suite of software applications for the iPhone, BlackBerry, and Android devices. I've run the business plan and concepts past business savvy friends and have gotten their input, their verification that the plan has legs, along with a solid financial model. I've even started programming and software development to bring the fruit first product to market. This is all being done in my personal time after a full nine to five role and after the requisite parenting and family duties are performed. During the last six months, a couple of similar products have hit the market and I'm wondering whether continuing to develop and release a Me Too product is going to be productive or should I change horses and start on one of the other projects? What would you suggest? Well, don't worry about being a Me Too product. I mean, most products out there that are wildly successful are in fact a me too product it's not something that's never been done before something we never heard of i mean when you do something that's never been done before you have to educate your potential audience before you can sell them the benefits of what it is you have if in fact you're coming along with a better pizza you know a better slushy or a better iphone app there's a whole lot of other players out there. It's always going to be a me too, but you just have to raise your hand and identify how are you 10% better? It's all you have to do. But now in this arena that you're talking about, yes, things change. Every second that ticks on a clock, things change. So you better be clear about getting it out there quickly. Don't wait on perfect. Get it out there quickly. I mean, look at the things that we see with the iPhone, with the iPad, I mean, with 48 days, I mean, I, my first 48 days to the work you love product was just a loose compilation of notes for a Sunday school class where I went to Kinko's, had a hard stock cover put on it and spiral bound. That was it. Then I added a little cassette tape to that wasn't even packaged together there was nothing to hold them together we just stuck it in the box together but it was a spiral bound hard stock cover with my loose notes printed one side only and a little cassette that I did at a friend's house on a Saturday morning where we hung a blanket on either side of me in a hallway to deaden the sound of his kids playing in another part of the house we didn't go back and edit that cassette tape, we didn't have music at the front. There were no breaks in it. It was a single track through the entire thing. It was about an hour long. That's how it was done. But I got it out there and people bought it and people kept asking for more and they told their friends to get it. And then I polished it a little bit as we went along and finally had a three ring binder. Again, printed hard stock paper, one side only, but we had a nice cover design at that point. And then I had two CDs in there where we did have music and a little more professional. But then I, that's what I sold a couple million dollars of that. And that was before I ever talked to a publisher about doing anything in a traditional trade book. The key I'm talking about here is called speed of Im implementation, speed of implementation. 
get it out there. There was a Harvard study a few years ago about salespeople who made over a quarter of a million dollars a year from their sales. Researchers found that the most successful salespeople had one trait in common, and it was called speed of implementation. That's what people do who are very successful. I mean, Hewlett Packard talks about that um, like 85% of the products they have on a shelf today did not exist 18 months ago. I mean, they just get it out there. And then when there are improvements to be made, they introduce a new model. One of the things I see with software people who are developing applications is that they wait too long trying to get it perfect. And by the time they get it perfect, yeah, there's three new players out there who are establishing a name for themselves. So speed of implementation. And don't worry about being a me too. Get it out there. Make it good and improve it as you go. I mean, I the product evolution that I have people when they come to our right to the bank event here where I help them see how they can take their writing and turn it into income as I have done are always blown away when they see some of the elementary rudimentary amateur kind of products that I have sold over the years because I don't wait on getting it perfect I just get it out there and I get it out there in a rough form and see if it's something that really connects with people. One of the things that we're working on right now is my 48 low-cost business ideas. It's a free PDF, free download. I did it in its original form over a weekend, and we put it up there because I had already promoted it in a radio interview that was going to be aired on the following Monday. So I did it really quickly, got it out there. There were lots of spelling errors, formatting errors and everything, but I put it out there and over 90,000 people downloaded it before I had a chance to make any improvements. Well, those people who downloaded it, now for one thing, they were directed to lots of other resources that we had. They joined our 48days.net community of entrepreneurs and big thinkers and rule benders. Uh, so they got involved in a lot of other ways. But now I've gone back and improved that PDF dramatically. But now we know that people do want that. Did that just saturate the market and mean that now nobody's left that wants it? No, not at all. That's not how it works. Now we can go back to that same audience and promote the fact that we have improved that product. We've made enhancements. Additional links are in there. Now it's available as a downloadable product that they pay for or a physical product. I mean, that's a legitimate way to develop something where you may want to give it away. Even with what you're talking about with an app, you may want to give it away until you see that there really is a viable audience for that. And then if there is, if people respond to it, then you refine it and make it better. I mean, how many of the apps that are out there right now, you can get it free in a limited version. Then once the people realize this is a really cool thing, I want this, then you get money for it. Pandora, I mean, the very popular online music source is like that you could go there and you can select any music create your own libraries they'll help you with that and it's a wonderful wonderful thing everybody in my family uses it extensively but then you're limited to 40 hours a month that you use it so if you hit the 40 hour limit they say you know what you're using this a lot if you really want to use this continuously you just pay i think it's like 39 dollars or something for a year and then you can use it continuously with no commercial breaks in there at all well i did that i'm happy to do that because they had already whetted my appetite in that i had been listening to it 
loved it, knew I wanted to continue using it, so then I was more than happy to pay for it. That's commonly done with apps as well. Don't worry about it being perfect, but get it out there. Don't wait too long. Heath from Tulsa says, Dan, I'm looking at, for some advice on a website I'm making. Bass Joe Shop. And the homepage doesn't look professional to me when I compare it to other websites like yours. I don't know what the problem is. Any advice is appreciated. Well, Heath, I agree. I looked at your website and it doesn't look professional. It looks very home done. It's kind of a strange header. If it really is for fishing, it ought to be something that's more engaging there and something more that connects easier. It's just very cumbersome. Now, what to do? I'm not a web designer. but So what I would do is find somebody who is. Now, that's kind of an interesting kind of encouragement and direction because there are about 60 zillion people out here who will tell you they're web designers. The web designs they do vary dramatically. Web design is certainly much more art than science. There's a whole lot of people who say they're web designers, but uh, just look at their work. I mean, when we redid our websites dramatically last year, I talked to probably 10 different companies, people and individuals and organizations who wanted to redo our sites. And I zeroed in on one young lady whose work is just stupendous. Uh, Her name is Missy, and you can find her on 48days.net. She's on our advisory team there and is still very actively involved on a day-by-day basis with everything we do that has a web presence. So my blog, my newsletter, she formats the newsletter. She oversees the blog. She does lots and lots of stuff for us, but her work kind of speaks for itself. You can get ideas given to you. Go to some of the sites that I have listed on our resources, things like the crowdsourcing sites on 99designs and other places where you can have people give you examples of the work that they do. And then you can choose something that's pleasing to the eye. But you know, you got to have a website that really engages people. You can't just have static information there or an outdated look these days and really attract a crowd. Art says, Dan, I need to teach I see a need to teach good customer service skills around the world. I want to become a consultant and trainer based on Disney Institute's customer service training and be an expert in this field, write a book, create a training program, conduct audits, secret shopper style, and become a speaker, presenter in the field. What do you think? Well, Art, I think there is a massive audience in teaching good customer service skills. I mean, Joanna and I just shake our heads and roll our eyes repeatedly. It's amazing how you can go to an upscale restaurant, as an example. The waiter brings your food, sets it down, you say, thank you very much. And he says, hey, no problem, dude. No problem, dude. I mean, what kind of response is that? Or or here, here in the South, we get a lot of, you know, well, I can certainly help you with that, darling. Darling, what would you like today? Or, I mean, some of the endearing names that are used are so unprofessional. It It's pretty killer. But then um, this week, again, we were going to a fundraiser. We had about 30 minutes. And so we whipped into Chick-fil-A to just grab a chicken wrap there. And there, unlike most any other place in the world, 
when that young waitress comes around and takes your tray, says, can I get that trash off your table? You say, well, sure, that'd be wonderful. Thank you. That waitress doesn't say, hey, no problem, dude. That waitress says, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I mean, how complicated is that? They always say that. They don't say no problem or hey, it's okay, or even you're welcome. They say, it's my pleasure. I mean, what a different atmosphere that gives you. And that's why Chick-fil-A, almost any time of the day, six days a week, they're closed on Sundays, of course, but six days a week, you go to the one right here locally, and of course, anywhere in the world where they are, and they have people out in the parking lot because the line for the drive through window is so long, they have people getting your orders in advance to help process you a little quicker. Do they have ongoing, consistent, out-the-door kind of business? Yes, they do. Little things add to that. Good customer service. It seems to be so simple, and yet so many companies seem to ignore that. Now, we know there's a market. That being said, you still have the challenge of figuring out how are you going to sell your services? Why will companies pay for your instruction in better customer service? Well, the, the market is so vast, we have to assume that there's plenty there for you to create a very profitable business. Yeah, I think you can do that, just like what you're talking about. You can write a book, create a training program, conduct secret shopper audits, as you describe, speak, present in that field. Absolutely. Do it. There's a lot of information you can pull together on how to do it well. So the the question really is, how do you make that a product or service that companies will pay you for. There are a lot of companies that can use it. I won't go on and mention any other names, but it's not easy or it's not difficult to find companies that really do need it. And it's not just those that are selling inexpensive products. There are companies that are selling high-end products where, again, the customer service is just horrendous. Yeah, great place to start, Art. Keep us posted on your progress. Paul says, Dan, could you please talk about the types of things that can cause blockages when trying to find your calling? My suspicion is that things such as fears, lack of action, not trying new things, maybe a few other thoughts. Thanks as always for all you do. What are the things that cause blockages when you're trying to find your calling? I mean, that's a book in itself. I mean, just life happening. People get caught in just surviving. All of a sudden, you're out of school, but then there's mortgages, kids' braces, college tuition, vacations come along, and they never step back and take a look at their life. Michael Gerber has written a lot about entrepreneurs. One of the things that he dissects in a very unique way, in a way that he's really known for it, is that entrepreneurs get caught up in working in their business rather than on their business where all of a sudden the guy who has a little print shop, you know, he's just back there, you know, putting ink in the machines and trying to keep the place clean and trying to get the order that they promised by 10 o'clock this morning out the door instead of planning, where do you want to be five years from now? Are you out there making contact with 30 new prospective clients this week? Who's doing that? So they get caught working in their business rather than on it. You know, the same exact thing happens when it comes to people's lives. We just get caught up working in our life rather than on our life. Now, that's a major kind of deal. 
But I think that a lot of people have never taken the time to really step back and try to identify their purpose, their calling, their mission, their destiny. In 48 Days to the Work You Love, I distinguish between calling, career, and job. Calling is the big picture. It's what you want to be remembered for. It's how you're going to create a legacy. It's what it is, you know, it's how you're going to make the world a better place. All those wonderful things and kind of the big picture. Career is a subset of that. There are many things as you you could do as a career that would embrace anything you can identify as a calling or vocation. Job is the smallest component. Job is just what we do daily. Yes, it has to embrace our career and our calling, but losing a job or quitting a job should never change your calling, your purpose. But if somebody has never stepped back to really identify what is my calling, what is my purpose, then losing a job is devastating. Then losing a job feels like I'm starting over again. I don't know what direction I'm going to go. And people go through life like a ball on a pinball machine. Gee, they get a job, something happens there, boom, they go off in a totally new direction. Something happens there, bang, it's off in another direction. That's not a way that any of us want to live our lives. And defining what our calling is prevents that. It gives us a compass so that even as jobs come and go, which they will inevitably do, we still have a clear direction. Where are we going? So, yes, you have to get by fears, lack of action. But a lot of it is just simply you have to invest the time and effort in identifying what your calling is. Carve out three hours. Carve out a weekend where you go off by yourself. Do something where you strategically are focused on doing that. It's not something that needs to take six months. It's something, though, that requires clear effort and focus to do it well and doing it well then will act as a filter for everything else you do in your life in time well spent. Let's go with one more. This comes from Gary, who signs it sad in the South. Dan, what's your advice? Stay with the love of your life or life satisfaction. I'm going to go through it quickly. In essence, Greg has always wanted to work for himself, but he moved from New York City to the South with the intention of attending school, realizing that school was just a distraction. I didn't attend and I revisited my desire to work for myself and I'm trying to do that. But here's the problem. He's in the South, seriously dislikes the South, but he's met somebody here who he thinks may be the love of his life. So he doesn't feel settled in the South. He's got a burning desire to move on because the business requires him to be in a large urban area. But he's also met this special person who he'd possibly like to settle down with. Well, what do you do? (laughs) Well, great, great, great questions. And what you want to do is look for and solutions. One of the key principles in Stephen Covey's seven habits is to look for and solutions, not either or. Don't assume your only choice is to either stay there with the love of your life or leave her and follow your dream somewhere else. Look for and solutions. Now, in as much as you describe the kind of work that you want to do is best done in a big urban setting, surely, I don't know where you are in the South, actually. I'm not sure where you are. I'm in the South. Nashville's not a New York City or um, Los Angeles or Miami, but I don't know of anything that could not be done in Nashville that you would want to perhaps do in one of those major cities. So don't think, don't just think that you have to be in a city of, 
you know, 5 million people in order to do what you want to do in the food industry. Be creative about that. You could be maybe the top player in a smaller town doing what it is you want to do and stay right there with your love of your life. The other thing is, if she is the love of your life and she feels the same way as you do, then moving is not that big of an issue. She may get excited about moving to a major metropolitan area. Even if it's just something you decide to do for two or three years to experiment, it'll be a new experience for her. But I can't imagine walking away from the love of your life because of a business idea that you want to pursue. Now, so I've kind of defined where I would go in this situation. I would not leave a person I thought that was the love of my life to follow a business dream. But I don't think that you have to make an either or choice. I think that you can make an and choice and love doing both, having both. Be convinced that you can find an end solution. Well, you know, I want you to live fully, to love without reserve, to laugh readily. Yeah, those things are important. Those are personal things. You know, then we want to integrate those same characteristics into work. Where you work with joy, work with abandon, be convinced you can have work that you love, but don't sacrifice personal things to get there. Hey, thanks for being part of this audience of people who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable.